Welcome to Parker's Pensies, a podcast dedicated to sharing my thoughts on philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about interesting things, and I invite you to think along with me. I live in a lot of language games. I wrestled in college. I'm a Christian. I study theology and philosophy. I keep reptiles and amphibians. My interests are all over the map. I have a lot of friends in a lot of different disciplines, and so I talk with them using different language. This means that I'll discuss anything from the theology of the ichthus to ichthyology, from hamartiology to herpetology, from transubstantiation to transcendental arguments and transhumanism. And so today for my inaugural podcast, I want to talk about something that I may be uniquely qualified to speak on, the ethics of feeding mice to giant African bullfrogs. But first, I need to address the title of my podcast. It's called Parker's Pensies. And Parker's Pensies is an homage to French philosopher theologian Blaise Pascal and his famous book, The Pensies. Now, I know that it's pronounced passes in French. Pascal was a French philosopher. I don't speak French, and so I don't want to be pretentious and say passes when I'm really just an American swine and I say pensies. So from here on out, it's going to be Parker's Pensies. If you want to pronounce it as Parker's Passes, feel free. Uh, if you're able to do that without being pretentious, that's awesome. So I want to start my podcast uh, uh, real quick again, actually. Pascal's Pensies, Passes, were published uh, posthumously. So Pascal was writing a book of Christian philosophy and apologetics, and he died before its completion. And so the rest of us are left with trying to figure out what goes where. And so in light of that, I wanted to get my thoughts out before I'm dead while I'm still kicking. Uh, so there's no confusion about well, what, what thoughts go where. So with that comes um, some immaturity. You know, I'm not, I'm not a mature thinker. I'm, young, I'm a young dude trying to figure some of this stuff out. So you'll bear with me. So starting out my podcast at the delta between theology, philosophy, and herpetology seemed like a good thing for me. Now, herpetology... Uh, comes from the Greek word herpeton, which is reptile or creeping thing. Those who know their Bible will know uh, that that's in Romans 1, reptiles and creeping things. And herpetology is a branch of zoology concerned with, concerned with reptiles and amphibians. So uh, why did I pick this? Why did I pick uh, the topic of giant African bullfrogs eating mice? Well, as some of you will know, especially those on my YouTube channel, I have a famous frog video a video about giant African bullfrogs eating everything in sight. In fact, that's the title. I published it back in May 2015. And as of today, actually, I got up to 35 million views. And so as you've imagined, uh, as you can imagine, there are a lot of people who have a lot of strong feelings about bullfrogs eating mice. Uh, and they let me know those feelings. And you can find all those crazy feelings in the comment section. So I want to get into the ethics of it. I've thought about it a lot. I've thought about it before I fed them mice. I thought about it during them eating mice, and I've thought about it since. And so before I get in 
Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about giant African bullfrogs. Now, I bought them. Actually, in the video, I have five different frogs. I bought them because I saw a Life video. A Life uh, is a series made by the same people who made Planet Earth. I think it was shown on the BBC. And in one of these Life episodes, there's giant African bullfrogs, or pixie frogs, as they're known, uh, in the in the at least in the American hobby. They're called pixie frogs because of their scientific name, which is Pixiecephalus adspersus. And a lot of people think that Pixie means uh, small, but it actually means uh, it's from the Greek word uh, pixis or puxis, um, which is actually an ancient vessel uh, that was shaped. Uh, it, here's a weird description. In the classical world, it was a vessel that was a cylindrical box. So whatever that means, a cylindrical box. I'm not sure how those two things can coexist in the same vessel um, with a separate lid. So that's that's pixie, and so it's like this box-shaped cylindrical thing. And then cephalus, uh, cephalic or uh, uh, kephale is head in Greek. So it's got this boxy head. And then adspersus, I think, is Latin. I looked it up, and uh, I think it means dispersed. So I, I'm not really sure where the scientific name comes from, but that's my best guess at it. So they're and they're called bullfrogs because they sound like bulls. They sound like cows. They make this. The males make this deep. Mm, mm, nice. It's a little bit different than the American bullfrog. So before I get into the ethics of feeding mice to these giant African bullfrogs, we need to talk a little bit about ontology. And ontology is just the study of being. And so let's get into it. It's from the, the Greek word ontos, being. And uh, in order to understand the ethics of it, we, we need to understand what we're talking about. So a lot of people have this visceral re reaction to seeing a mouse, this little mammal being eaten by this giant uh, amphibian frog. So is it wrong to feed a mouse to giant, a giant African bullfrog? I think the intuition for those who are having this really strong visceral reaction is that there's some sort of order of being going on that you know, mammals are up here and amphibians are down here and it's, it's perverse to switch those so that an amphibian is getting its sustenance from a, a mammal. Maybe there's some sort of we're mammals and they're mammals and this cute little mouse and this gross looking, mean looking frog. It doesn't seem quite right. But let's, let's analyze that a little bit more. Let's lay some philosophical and theological groundwork in order to answer this question. So let's talk about moral status. Do mice have moral status? Do animals in general have moral status? Do humans have moral status? If so, what is it grounded in? Now, moral status, meaning uh, do they have rights? And ought we respect them in a certain way? How ought we to do that? And what gives them that moral status? So within philosophy, there's been lots of different efforts to ground uh, humanity's moral status. Some look to reason. Man is the rational animal, as Aristotle famously said. Others look to volition. And these will be the kind of existentialist philosophers who talk about, you know, the will to power or um, essence uh, precedes existence. That's right. Yeah. So... Um, 
these people focus on the will, our ability to choose between alternative possibilities, our ability to will our, our own existence to shape who we become. And then there's others who look to the affections. These are the more, these are the more romantic thinkers. We are the ones who can love. We're, we're able to actually transcend this natural, animalistic, natural order and go beyond it and love. But yeah, that's what we're able to do. And it's really romantic. Sounds great. I think there's a problem with, with too narrowly defining our moral status based on our capacities. And that is a human being who's missing one of those capacities. If that's the capacity that's the top one, they don't have moral status anymore. You know, what, what if we're looking at reason, man's a rational animal. What about someone who's not so rational? What about someone with a, a mental disability? If we're looking at volition, what about someone who has acrasia, you know, weakness of the will? Or, um, again, lacks the, the rational capacity to choose or uh, is morally corrupt. Are they Do they lose their status as humans? And likewise, the, th the same thing can go for affections. Someone who doesn't have the right affections or who uh, they're, they're warped a little bit. Are they no longer human? Do they not deserve the same respect that every other human enjoys through that moral status? I think, of course, of course they do. Right. And so I want to define human's moral status, not from the ground up, not from looking at our attributes and our qualities and then building moral status on those, but rather a top down. And like I said earlier, I'm a Christian, so I base humanity's moral status in God, not, not from the ground up, from the top down. So I think the Declaration of Independence gets this right. And uh, I want to make a Joe Biden joke, but I won't. The declaration says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we're, gra we're granted this moral status as created persons made in the image of our creator, God. We have the potential to think his thoughts after him. There's the rational component. We have the potential to be sub-creators and use what he's created to create more things for his glory. That's the uh, volitional aspect. We can choose to work and mold and shape things that he's made. And we have the capacity to be emulative lovers. That is to love as he loves, to emulate him in his love. That's the, the affections perspective that we want to hit on as well. And so I think those three things are equally ultimate. I don't think we can ultimate, ultimatize one over against the other or we lose something about the human experience. We lose something about the imago Dei, that is the image of God. I think we're called to image God in those three ways. So what about animals? Animals don't do that. Animals aren't made in the image of God. So what's their moral status? Are they persons? You know, we believe that God is personal. Uh, as Christians, we believe that God is tripersonal, that he is three persons, one essence, one being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So persons have moral status. We, we, God has moral status. Right? He's a person. He's not a created human person. So persons have moral status. Peter Singer wants to lump in the great apes. And he says the great apes have moral personal status because they, in fact, are persons. He says they are self-aware beings capable of thought. He says their, for, they, uh, their foresight and anticipation enable them to plan ahead. 
And he says we can even recognize the rudiments of ethics in the way they respond to other apes who fail to return a favor. That's from his essays, his essay, Chimpanzees Are People Too. So Peter Singer's starting from the bottom up and he's trying to build up to moral status. And we get into all this kind of fuzzy, weird thing, uh, situations where some people wouldn't fit that, that category. Some people wouldn't um, be up to snuff in the capacities department, whereas some other animals would. And so they would take their place in the moral hierarchy, which is a weird thing to do. Uh, I, I think it's a preposterous thing to do. And so that's why I don't start from the bottom up. Bottom up definitions get fuzzy. Some animals are in, some humans are not. So that partly demonstrates the necessity of top-down definitions when it comes to moral status. But what about what about just moral status at all? Does that mean that since they're not persons, humans can do whatever they want to animals? They have no moral capacity. We can just rape and pillage the animal kingdom? Well, here I want to read from Roger Scruton, and I want to read at length, if I can find his book. Here we go. I want to read from his book, Animal Rights and Wrongs, Roger Scruton, who just went, who just passed away, uh, I believe it was in 2020. Scruton says, firstly, we relate to animals in three distinct situations, which define three distinct kinds of responsibility as pets, as domestic animals reared for human purposes, and as wild creatures. Secondly, the situation of animals is radically and often irreversibly changed as soon as human beings take an interest in them. Pets and other domestic animals are usually entirely dependent on human care for their survival and well-being, and wild animals, too, are increasingly dependent on human measures to protect their food supplies and habitats. Some shadow version of the moral law, therefore, emerges in our dealings with animals. I cannot blithely count the interests of my dog as on par with the interests of any other dog, wild or domesticated. Even though they have an equal capacity for suffering and equal need for my help, my dog has a special claim on me, not wholly dissimilar from the claim of my child. I cause it to be dependent on me precisely by leading it to expect that I would care that I would cater for its needs. The situation is further complicated by the distinction between species. Dogs form lifelong attachments and a dog brought up by one person may be incapable of living comfortably with another. A horse may be bought or sold many times with little or no distress, provided it is properly cared for by each of its owners. Sheep maintained in flocks are every bit as dependent on human care as dogs and horses, but they do not notice it and regard their shepherds and guardians as little more than aspects of the environment, which rise like the sun in the morning and depart like the sun at night. For these reasons, we must consider our duties towards animals in three separate ways, as pets, as animals reared for our purposes, and as creatures of the wild. I love those three perspectives as pets, as animals reared for our purposes and as wild animals. And so, yes, we do have ethical duties towards these animals. If we've changed their environment, if we've brought them into our home, just as Scruton was saying, if we've made them dependent on us, then we owe something to them. Now, animals don't think the way we do. 
Uh, they're incapable of language. And we have to attribute different thoughts to them. So this also affects how we deal with them. So we need to keep that in mind as we consider animal pain and suffering. Animals absolutely experience pain and suffering. We know that. That's just blatantly obvious. But they don't experience pain and suffering the same way that we do in a reflective manner. Why is this happening to me? Uh, they don't have discursive thought the way we do, at least not that we can tell from one topic to the next. They don't have reflexive thought where they're self-conscious. We believe animals are conscious. There's something that it's like to be that animal. But they don't reflect on that. They don't engage in metacognition, thinking about thinking. Uh, my dog Scruffy didn't sit around and think about ontology of dogness. You know, what does it mean to be a dog? They just wanted another milk bone. And even when I say he wanted it, he wasn't thinking, I want a milk bone. Maybe he was thinking, I want that crunchy thing, or I want that brown thing. Or, I want that thing that smells like that. You know, so even to say he wanted that wishbone or that, that milk bone is to attribute a propositional thought to him that he probably was incapable of having because he didn't have language like I do. And so when we talk about dogs barking up the wrong tree, in one sense, that's true because, yeah, that dog was looking for that cat, but the cat's not up that tree. And so he's barking up the wrong tree. But in another sense, that dog probably wasn't thinking, I'm going to chase this cat. Maybe he was thinking, I'm going to chase this brown blur or this smelly thing or this large squirrel or this large rat. It's so impossible to get past that aspect problem. What aspect is the dog thinking of when he's thinking of the squirrel up the tree or the cat up the tree? He doesn't have language precise enough to pick out uh, different aspects of that animal, which we need for propositional thought. But animals nonetheless have moral status insofar as they are entangled with persons like us who indeed do have moral status. And this goes right along with the biblical depiction, which is called dominion. In Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve in his image and charges them with caring for his creation with exercising dominion over the rest of the created order as God's vice regents, as God's arbiters of his will, as God's representative, his very own image bearers. Thus, by virtue of human ontology, we have an ethical duty to represent God to our sister nature. Yeah, you heard that. It's, it's not our mother nature. It's our sister nature. We have an ethical obligation to her, if you want to call her a her. Uh, but sister nature also includes the animal kingdom. So indeed, the first thing we see Adam do in the Bible is engage in the science of, tech, of taxonomy. Taxonomy is uh, just naming the animals. God brings all the animals to Adam and says, what do you want to call this one? What do you want to call this one? And he doesn't see a, a helper fit for him. So God makes Eve also in his image. So yes, animals have moral status, but a derivative moral status, one for which we exercise dominion over. And so we can kill a cow and we can eat that cow. And that's all right. That's a, that's a good thing to do. And so far as we're providing sustenance for ourselves and our family. To eat our kids is completely different because that's an abomination. That's crossing the, the ontological gap between us and animals. That's using a human person as a means instead of an end. And as a gruesome means, a means of satiating ourselves, something that's meant for the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, but never ever for uh, other image bearers of God. It's disgusting. 
There's something crazy wrong about that. And it's grounded in our ontology. The ethics of cannibalism are grounded in our ontology. We're made in God's image. And so now with a little bit of ontology in hand, we can begin answering the ethical question about feeding mice to giant African bullfrogs. Now, ethics is uh, moral philosophy. Uh, in philosophy, you have practical reasoning, which is moral reasoning, and you have uh, theoretical reasoning, which is more logic. <clears throat> so this whole time we've been engaging in moral reasoning, in practical philosophy. Harry Gensler, a professor of logic and of philosophy, um, and of moral philosophy, ethics, says that ethics or moral philosophy is reasoning about the big questions of morality. So philosophy is the big questions. Ethics is the big questions of morality. So in order to answer the question, is it wrong to feed mice to giant African bullfrogs, I want to introduce three different branches or levels of ethics. Meta-ethics, normative ethics, and applied ethics. Applied ethics is a uh, applied ethics deals with, is this specific thing right or wrong? Normative ethics has to do with what things are right and wrong. And meta-ethics has to do with what we mean by right and wrong. And how do we know what's right and what's wrong? And are there ethical truths? And what are those ethical truths grounded in? How can we be justified in our claims to moral knowledge? As you can see, I like uh, meta-ethics a little bit more than the other two. So let's start with meta-ethics then. That's the most broad, that's all the way back out, the most meta level, right? <clears throat> meta is another Greek word, uh, beyond, in, or through, depending on what it's paired with. Um, so meta-ethics um, meta is beyond. It's, it's the most abstracted level of ethics. Think of metaphysics. It's what's beyond physics. It's the undergirding, beyond so as to provide the foundation for physics. So we're looking at meta-ethics. What's the ground level? What's, what's the most abstract we can get? And there's not much more abstract than, is there an objective more, uh, standard of morality at all? If no, then who cares about answering the question? If there's no morality, then who cares if you know, we're asking a dumb question? There is no right or wrong. So it doesn't matter. Just do whatever you want to do. Of course, that's not right. You know... There's two types of uh, there's two types of philosophies that deny this that deny that there is an objective standard. The first one is subjectivism that it's up to the subject. It's all the way down to the personal level, the the very base that you can get. Just one person. Subjectivism. A subjectivist defines good as up to the individual. What's good is up to them. It's their choice. It's personal preference. Now, if that's the case, then is it right to feed mice to giant African bullfrogs? Well, it depends on the person. If it's right for that person, it's right. If it's wrong for that person, it's wrong. But what happens when two people bump into each other? It's right for, for Steve, but it's wrong for Bob. And then Steve's trying to buy a mouse from Bob to feed to his frog. Like, does Bob sell the mouse? It's wrong. He knows what he's, what's going to happen. It's wrong for him, but it's right for Steve. Subjectivism's out. You know, we can't even have a meaningful conversation about that. Next up from subjectivism, from the subject, is to the culture. Cultural relativism. Cultural relativism. 
in this philosophy or in this ethical theory, good is up to the society. So it, it depends on the society. Is feeding mice to giant African bullfrogs wrong? Well, it depends. Maybe in the States it's wrong, but maybe in Australia it's not. And so, you know, how dare you judge me if you're living in Australia or how dare I judge you? Again, this, this one is not very livable. All you have to do is bring up the Nazis. Was it right for the Nazis to do what they did? Was it right for Hitler to do what he did and, and create this Third Reich? Was that right? Of course it was not right. And if you are a cultural relativist and you think what they did was wrong, even though he redefined what was good in his society, then you're kind of a jerk then. You know, you're elevating your culture. You're kind of uh, a jingoist. You're elevating your culture's ethics above another culture's when you're all supposed to be on the same playing field. Uh, of course, that's not right. So let's let's move on to theories that, that look in an objective standard of morality. I think many of you who believe in moral progress or who ever get morally outraged, especially by a guy feeding a mouse to a frog, know intuitively that morality is objective. Well, why, why is that true? Well, if you believe in moral progress, progress always progresses towards something. There has to be a standard by which you can say this society is getting better or this society got worse. Well, according to what? If there's no measuring stick, then how do you know? Of course, even in affirming that moral progress is possible, you're affirming that there's an objective standard by which to judge that moral progress or regress. Uh, likewise, those who get uh, morally outraged are affirming that when you're yelling at someone and you're morally incensed, you're expecting them to be able to understand what you're saying. If they didn't have the same morality as you, then you're a jerk for judging them based on your morality. No, of course, you're holding them to an objective standard. You ought to know that this is wrong. And I'm mad at you because you're not acting according to that standard that you and I both know. So moral outrage presupposes an objective standard. Moral progress presupposes an objective standard. And if that's the case, what is that objective standard grounded in and how do we know? These are meta-ethical questions. <clears throat> so what, I'm, what I want to argue for, what I've just argued for, is, is something called moral realism or evalu evaluative realism, that you're making these evaluative judgments, moral judgments, based on a real moral law. Now, this philosopher, she's she's a really good philosopher, Sharon Street, she's proposed a uh, Darwinian dilemma for uh, naturalists who want to ground moral realism in naturalism. The idea that all we are is is physical and we've been we're the byproducts of nature, uh, just time and chance acting on matter, time. And time acting on matter. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Chance and time and matter whipped up over time, right? Um, that is naturalism. There's no supernatural. There's no immaterial soul. There's no God. Um, but we are natural products from the Big Bang and then from evolutionary biology. Um, Sharon Street's argument is awesome. She talks about this dilemma um, for the naturalist, for the evolutionary naturalist, the dilemma is you want to, if you want to hold to moral realism, 
then that idea is at odds with your very own evolutionary uh, theory. Because in evolutionary theory, you're evolving not uh, to know what's best morally, not not along some moral uh, standard, but rather to survive. Survival of the fittest is the ethos of Darwin, Darwinistic, Darwinian, naturalistic evolution. And so you're, you're evolving not to know that this is right and this is wrong, but rather which beliefs, which moral beliefs will help me be in the right place to survive. It's so cool because it's, it's really a moral version of Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism, which instead of talking about <clears throat> uh, moral realism, has to do with our cognitive faculties. And so real briefly, I'll lay it out for you. Alvin Plantinga says that if evolution and naturalism were true, then we humans would have evolved to know, to, to uh, come to beliefs that help us survive rather than beliefs that are necessarily true. So take a frog, for instance. If a frog eats, uh, if a giant African bullfrog goes around eating mice and thinks that every time he eats a mouse, uh, it's, he's one step closer to becoming a frog prince, well, it really doesn't matter the content of that belief. As long as he keeps eating mice, he'll survive. See, so he, if he has that survival belief that's false, he's never going to turn into a frog prince, no matter how many mice he eats. But if he thinks that the next mouse might do it, he'll keep eating mice and therefore he'll keep surviving. And so if that's the case for us, if we've evolved uh, based on the, the tenets, uh, the principles of naturalistic evolution, then all of our beliefs would be aimed at survival, not truth. Yeah, truth helps us survive here and there, but truth is hard to come by. Two plus two equals four. That's There's one answer to that. There's a billion wrong answers that can get you approximately close enough to survive. And so Sharon Street says the same thing in her in her moral version of the evolutionary argument against naturalism. She's she's not a Christian either. She's, she's arguing against moral realism. And it's for that reason that philosophers like Thomas Nagel have said, I think Street's right, and so therefore I'm dropping the Darwinistic evolution, because I'm, I believe so firmly in moral realism. So this brings us to my position. I'm a Christian, and so I believe in moral realism. I think that moral realism is grounded in God, in his ultimately in his nature. God is the summum bonum, the sunum bonum, the summum bonum. God is the greatest good, the highest good. <clears throat> now, immediately, people will think of the Euthyphro Dilemma. And the Euthyphro dilemma is a dilemma proposed by Socrates to this guy Euthyphro, who was a really pious man. He was so pious that he was bringing his father to court to try him for murder. His father had caught a uh, one of his servants killing another servant and tied him up, threw him in a ditch until he could bring him to the courts. And in the ditch, he succumbed to the elements and died. And so Euthyphro thought that was not justice. That's not pious of him. So I'm going to take him to the courts myself, my father, and try him. That shows how pious I am because I'm willing to try my own father. And Socrates has a problem with this and raises this dilemma for him. He says, now is, um, is, what is, is piety what the gods say it is? Or do the gods have to appeal to some higher authority, some higher piety? Now, if it's up to the gods themselves, then it seems arbitrary and the gods disagree. They have fights all the time in Greek uh, mythology. If it's some higher good, then why don't we worship that instead of the gods? If there's some higher 
view of piety. And so as this has come down to us, uh, atheists and uh, agnostics and all sorts of folks will want to use this against the idea of God himself. They want to say, well, is does God think things are good because they are inherently good in, in and of themselves? Or does God assign goodness to things? And the, the argument goes, well, God could assign goodness to uh, murder then or bestiality. If God said that was good, would that make it good? Well, no, of course not. Well, then is there some higher standard by which God is judging bestiality to be wrong? Well, if we say that, then it seems like there's a higher God above God, this, this form of the good. And so that's the dilemma, the two horns of, the, of Euthyphro's dilemma. And every supernaturalist is going to have to deal with this. But the problem is we've been dealing with this again and again and again. A Christian will say this is a false dilemma because there's a third option. God is the source of good. His very own nature is good. So he only does good because that's his nature to do good. But the external, there is no external standard outside and above him. His very own nature is that. So God says things are good. And the standard by which he's calling that good is his very own nature, not anything outside him. And it's not arbitrary, as if he can assign goodness to things that are inherently evil. Things are inherently evil because they go against God's good nature. So that's the answer to the youth for a dilemma. But then how do we know what's good and how, and how do we know what's bad? Well, Christians look to Romans 1 and Romans 2, and we say it's based on our ontology. We're, we've been given this conscience. It's based on our ontology that we're made in God's image. We're image bearers of God, and we can't help but bearing his image. Now, we're sinners, so we bear false witness of him, but we can't help but know him at some level. Also, the Bible says that we've been given a conscience, um, and we've marred that conscience with, conscience with scar tissue. The more you tell a lie, the easier it becomes to tell more and more and more lies. You don't feel as bad about it anymore. We also know through general revelation and through our reason, we can judge things. We can see that this is wrong. This is going against the natural order that's out here in creation. And then most importantly, we know through special special revelation. We've already made mention to it a couple times. Books like Romans, where it says that the law is written on our heart. And even the Gentiles who didn't have the Torah, the Torah that the Jews had, they still know that murder is wrong. They still know that there's something wrong about killing and bestiality and all sorts of wickedness. No one had to tell them. And you hear people say this all the time. If you needed God to tell you right and wrong, then you're dumb. Well, in a sense, no, we didn't need God to tell us right and wrong because we're made in his image and we have a conscience and we can reason about reality and see it uh, intuitively and immediately. But in another level, we're sinners. And so we get confused and we get marred up and we not only do evil acts, but we give praise to those who do them like us. We invent new ways of evil and then we yell at those who go against it, who are ex who expose our evil. And so, yeah, we need this external referent point, reference point, this external referent, this e external law given to us, and that's God's word. <clears throat> so that's how we know. That's that's a basic. Uh, that's where I'm coming from with metaethics. So now, with that under our belt, we can move on to normative ethics. Uh, normative ethics deals with principles about how we ought to live. So we talked about the foundations of it. Now we're going to talk about different. Um, ethical theories. So first up, we're going to go through three three major 
normative theories. The first up is consequential consequentialism, also known as teleological ethics. And this theory says that um, we need to maximize long-term good consequences. If you're a consequentialist, then you look to see if the ends justify the means. The, the consequences of actions determine whether something's right or wrong. And so under this heading, under this uh, branch, we have classical utilitarianism, which says we ought to always do whatever maximizes the long-term balance of pleasure over against pain for everyone affected by our action. So you kind of do this moral calculus of does this, will this action bring more pleasure than it brings pain? We also have egoism, which is maximize the, the most goods for ourselves. Egoistic, egotistical, right? We also have altruism, which is the converse of egoism. That uh, is, also falls under utilitarianism, which is to maximize the most goods for others. Then there's hedonism, uh, which says that goods are analyzed by pleasure and pain. So again, you can see how these are all kind of connected to each other. And then there's pluralism, uh, in which goods are analyzed by various factors depending on the thinker. They'll choose different things as their criteria. So that's consequentialism. Next, we have deontological ethics, which says that certain actions are wrong in and of themselves, not just due to their consequences. So lying is always wrong. Even if you're hiding Jews from Nazis, it's still wrong to lie. Uh, a consequentialist will say, well, no, of course it's not wrong in that situation because you're saving a bunch of Jews from Nazis. No, the consequences uh, outdo the, the whatever wrong comes from lying, and so therefore it's a good act. Deontolo deontologists like Kant would say no. And Kant even gives forth his uh, categorical imperative that says, act in such a way that you would want all other rational people to act towards all other rational people. So uh, should you lie? Well, would you want everyone else to lie to everyone else? No, because then the very concept of truth would vanish. So don't tell lies. Deontology. Um, it sounds like ontological, right? But it's actually from de, deontos, I believe, or deont. Um and it means the science of moral duty. So deontology has to do with duty. Consequentialist has to do with cause and effect, has to do with consequences of an action. Deontology has to do with duty. And then the third branch is virtue ethics. Now, virtue is a good character trait. And this theory can actually be paired with deontological theories or consequentialist theories. This has to do with charity and beneficence. Which choice a virtue ethicist will ask, which choice will make you more virtuous or which choice uh, will make you less virtuous? If you make this over time, would this lead you to be a more virtuous person? That's what the virtue theorist is asking. So you see, we have these three different aspects uh, on normative ethics. <clears throat> and a really popular way to determine what kind of uh, ethic you hold to is to look at trolley problems. And trolley problems are the, the basic problem that many of you have heard, where there's a trolley coming down the tracks and its brakes are out. And will you pull the lever to send it left? And uh, it's going to hit only one person. But if you don't pull the lever, it's going to hit five people. And you can do all sorts of crazy stuff where you add new things to it and, uh, and complicate it more and more and more. So now we've talked about normative ethics and metaethics in order to answer our applied ethical question, is it wrong to feed mice to giant African bullfrogs? So here again, we're going to move on to a Christian perspective on metaethics and normative ethics, and we've covered a little bit already. 
as a Christian, I'm going to follow Christian philosopher and theologian uh, Cornelius Van Til, and also one of his students, John Frame. And they, they talk about a goal, a motive, and a standard. Goal, standard, motive. And again, they I don't think you can separate these out. Just like when we analyzed <clears throat> the volition and the rationality and the affections of the human person, uh, and they were equally ultimate. While you don't choose one and ultimatize it over the others, I think the same thing is true with our normative and meta-ethical uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Goal, standard, and motive, each one is equally ultimate. You can't have one that's ultimatized above the other two or everything gets out of whack. So a goal is emphasizing, um, we're, we're bringing in the teleological perspective. What's the end goal? <clears throat> What's the consequence? Uh, wh what do we want the consequence to be? The standard is the deontological perspective. Uh, we have to have some kind of standard by which to judge our goal. If there's no standard, then how do we know which goal is the right goal to use? And then also the we have the motive. And the motive uh, emphasizes the virtuous or the virtue perspective. And so you can have the right goal and the right standard, which tells you the right goal, and you can go about that for the wrong motive. And that makes it wrong. Okay, so we got goal, standard, and motive. Let's let's talk practical ethics. Let's bring this to a close here. Is it ethical for me to feed a mouse to a giant African bullfrog? Well, what's the goal? The goal is to feed my frog, <clears throat> or my frogs. I had five of them in the video. I wanted to give them sustenance. Uh, I read online that it's good for these frogs to eat a mouse, a rodent, uh, could be a rat pup, Um once a month, it's good for them. It's they have good um, moisture content, and their bones are good calcium for the frog, so they can suck that calcium up and use it for their own development. And uh, and it's protein for them. There's there's all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of information out there that says it's good to feed a mouse to your frog once a month. So I wanted to feed them that. <clears throat> How about the standard? What's the standard? Well, we have to use. Um, some good and necessary consequence here. Um, we have to use our minds to apply biblical truth to our situation. The, the Bible is my standard, my ultimate highest standard. The Bible doesn't say you, thou shalt not feed mice to frogs. Uh, okay, but it does say that I'm, I'm called to be God's, I, I'm made to be God's image bearer. I'm called to exercise dominion over his creation in a way that brings him glory and honor. So that's my standard. If I were to rip this mouse in half and let it just suffer there, I don't think that's me representing God very well. Um, if I were to feed a large mouse to a small frog that couldn't handle it and the mouse ends up killing my pet frog, I think there's something wrong with that. I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't feed a mouse to a turtle that couldn't handle it and would rip it apart and produce unnecessary suffering for the mouse. And so by good and necessary uh, consequent, I can I can reason from the Bible to this specific scenario, but that's my standard. Okay, so then what's my motive? My my goal goal and motive can be confused. The goal was to feed the frog. Well, what's the motive? Well, why did I have to do it in this way? There's all sorts of stuff. You guys have, have seen the video. If you have, then you've seen that I fed it roaches and worms and all sorts of other stuff. So what was the motive? I wanted to see him eat a mouse. You know, I, I, I thought it was a, a human, humane way to do it. People always ask, why didn't you kill the mice first? 
What you think that I can do it in a more humane way than the frog can? What am I supposed to bash his head in? How am I supposed to kill this mouse? Am I supposed to give him drugs that could pass on to my pet uh, frog that I'm supposed to be caring for? Should I suffocate it? I, what, what should I do? Well, you can feed them frozen mice. You can thaw them out. Yeah, you could do that, but I wanted to elicit my frog's predator predator instincts. You know, I have, as uh, Scruton was talking about, I brought this frog into my life and made him dependent on me. He lived, uh, they all lived in, in different aquariums that I had for him, uh, terrariums. I set up land and water areas for them. And I wanted to provide them with the natural experience that they would have in the wild, as natural as it could be living in my basement with, you know, my five roommates, whatever, back in, in college. So I wanted to be able to give them that kind of, uh, I don't know if it's dopamine response or anything like that. I don't know what kind of uh, neurochemistry is going on in the giant African bullfrog, but something happens when they see the mouse and their eyes light up and they take on and they tackle a big uh, prey item, which is much different than when they, when they tackle a cricket. So I wanted to elicit that in them, and I thought it would be awesome. And it turns out it was pretty sweet, so much so that 35 uh, million of you thought so too and watched it. Now a lot of you guys gave it a thumbs down, uh, and a lot of you guys gave me uh, a bunch of crap on my comment section. But I, I didn't do it to be a mean jerk. You know, my, my goal was to feed my frog. My standard was to be a arbiter of God's will, um, not that. I'm going to say that it was God's will that he told me I need to feed this mouse to this frog, but that I was exercising dominion over his creation. These mice that we have uh, cultivated for our own purposes. And actually, if you're interested in, in mice and what they're good for, check out uh, Eric Weinstein, Eric Weinstein's podcast, the portal with his brother, Brett Weinstein, where they talk all about mice and, um, and the telomeres that mice have and how they're all jacked up for, for all of our pharmaceuticals. It's really trippy and freaky out. But so these mice are actually not even that good for pharmaceutical testing. Anyways, these mice have been bred um, as, as feeders for frogs and snakes and all sorts of other things. So I had a goal to feed my frog. I had the standard of the Bible that tells me I'm to exercise dominion and care for his creation. And so I, I shouldn't just wantonly destroy mice and kill them in the, in the most evil way possible because that's not imaging God very well. And my motive was to see my frog eat something cool and to um, elicit that response when his eyes light up and to care for him well, to give him a kind of experience that he would come upon in nature. It would be a huge meal for him. He'd get all jacked up about it if frogs can get jacked up about stuff, which I think they can. Um, not in the propositional way that we do. So there's my reasoning process through it. Um, maybe you guys disagree. Let me know in the comments. <clears throat> but um, this has been uh, the first of hopefully many, Lord willing, podcasts, uh, Parker's Pensies podcast, Posses, if you're French. Well, we could talk about this more and perhaps someday we will. But for now, that will have to do. I hope you learned something cool and thought about something in a new way. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.